Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt Library. And we're really delighted to see so many of you here this evening. I don't want you to think that we're going to serve dinner at all of our Writers Live programs <laughs> in the future. This is a special occasion. This is the kickoff for our adult summer reading program. So let's have a show of hands. How many of you have registered for adult summer reading? Good. Not enough. <laughs> Not enough. We've been doing um, a summer reading program for adults for the last few years. We, you know, we always have done them for children and teens, and so we decided to let the adults have a good time as well in the summer. And we know that you're all reading books in the summer anyway, so you might as well participate. Um, Shailene Beyer, who is standing in the back there, um, Shailene is a librarian here at the Central Library in the Fiction Department, and she is on the committee that plans the Adult Summer Reading Program. And if you stop and see her uh, after the program, we have uh, galleys or advanced reading copies out there for anybody who has signed up or wants to sign up this evening and book bags. So that's part of the, um, part of the festivities. And we will be bringing in more chairs for those of you who've just arrived. We have, we have two seats up here. There's some in the middle there. So, <coughs> so the theme for the, the summer reading program this summer is Escape the Ordinary. And we thought that um, no better a person to talk about that um, or someone who has really escaped the ordinary is Maria Drum. Um, and before I um, officially introduce Maria, I want to tell you that on the table in the back, there are uh, copies of our calendar. You can also see on um, the Pratt's website the calendar for July and August of all the events that are happening. So, um, so please pick up our calendar. Stay in touch with us on our website, prattlibrary.org. So, Maria. Maria Drum is an attorney a mother of six, grandmother of nine, and after uh, an illustrious 20-year career in law, she retired, and she taught international trade and cross-cultural communication at Anhui University uh, in China, and, well, Anhui University of Trade and Economics in Bengu, China, and then she also taught in Trichy in India. I can't say it. It's, um, it's a very long word. Um, she's won awards from the National Endowment for the Humanities and has won awards for her photography as well. And she's going to take us on a journey this evening uh, along the Silk Road. And after um, the program, she'll be happy to answer your questions. And she has copies of her book for sale. Maria, thank you. Thank you very much, Judy. Well, I don't want to disappoint you, but Maria is not here tonight. I am Zumira. I am the second sister of Timur, the great Timur. Do you know him? He was the conqueror of the universe. The ruler of the world and the sword of Islam. He was my brother. And today, I am going to take you on a journey of the Silk Road because I have come back from the 13th century and the 14th century so that I can tell you about what happened in those days and how wonderful the original globalization really was. How the Chinese sold their silk around the world and made a difference in all the cultures because religion, because free thinking, because all of these things came together on the Silk Road. Now, before I start, I want to ask you, how many of you have spoken or have heard the language Sagdiana? Are any of you speaking Sagdiana lately? 
No? Satyana? Well, I want you to know it's the lingua franca of the Silk Road. The Sogdians were the main traders on the Silk Road. And that was only about 1,500 years ago. Uh, what do you think about English? I mean, do you think they'll remember us? You? Not me. I speak Sogdiana. Yes. So anyway, um, I want to tell you a little bit about the Silk Road, this long journey that took up to a year to cover about 3,000 miles. Now, this is a map that I have uh, drawn, and it's, it's in my book, but the blue is the Maritime Silk Road, which became popular about 600 A.D., between 600 and 800. And the reason it became popular was because the Persians, who are right here in the middle, were interrupting the trade between China and the West, which was called the Western Territories. We may call it Italy, Rome, but they called it the Western Territories. So how did the Silk Road get started? Why? Was there a demand for trade? Well, <clears throat> long before there was anything to do about the Silk Road, there was a quite a bit of trade between China and the Arabs over here, just about over here. Now, first of all, I have to tell you, I forgot, but the Silk Road is not a road. It is a series of trade networks, and all those red lines are the caravan routes. And of course, there are many more, but I only put on the major caravan routes. And the blue lines are the maritime routes. So <clears throat> what happened? How did it get started? In 135 BC, Emperor Wudi had his capital in, in uh, Xi'an, over here, way over here, in Xi'an. And um, he was, the Chinese had a very wonderful culture, even in uh, 135 BC. But they were being threatened. Oh, I don't know if I can use it. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, that's a great idea. Oh, great. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Well, anyway, they were being threatened by um, this group of nomads from the north, way over here. And they were called Shogunaz. In Europe, they called them the Huns. But the Shogunaz were nomads, and they raided the Chinese, they raided their food, they raided their palaces, because they did not grow anything or make anything. They were truly just nomads, and they would uh, you know, steal from other cultures because they did not do any um, agriculture. So the Shogunaz were a real threat. And... Um, Emperor Wudi decided he had to do something about this. Well, there were three options. The first one was bribery. That's always pretty good. Uh, jade, gold, silk. And it worked for a while. There was another option. Intermarriage. The princesses of the Chinese empire could go and marry the different khans uh, in, uh, of these uh, raiders, of these uh, shogunas. And that worked also. Many princesses were sent up to the northern part, uh, north of uh, Xi'an and around this area. They had to go through the Gobi Desert to get to the Khan. But they also, uh, this made an alliance, some kind of a military alliance, when there was family involved. But the third option was war. And the most important thing for war, well, I mean, you're going to say soldiers, but what else? The most important thing for war in 135 BC was horses. Horses. 
The Chinese had horses, but their horses had very soft hoofs, and they were not good crossing the mountains around here at all. And you can see there's mountains all over. So the Chinese needed better horses. And Emperor Wudi had heard that there were, there were uh, better horses available, but it was about eight or 900 miles away. So he sent General Zhang, spelled Z-H-A-N-G, he sent General Zhang with 100 men to look for these great horses. Now just remember, this is a world with no compasses, no GPS, <laughs> no cell phones, and no maps. So General Zhang just headed in a direction where he thought he would find these horses that were so wonderful. They were owned by the Yitzi people. Now the Yitzi people had been um, kicked out of their territory by the shogunats. So General Woody thought, well, they'd love to be in alliance with me. They'll definitely sell me horses. It took General Zhang 10 years to find the Yitzi. He was um, captured by the shogunat. He was imprisoned. Eventually, he married a, a woman who was a shogunat slave and had two children. And then he managed to escape. Whether he was escaping for him, his wife or the <laughs> shogunats, I don't know, but he, he managed to escape. And he got to see the Yitzi, who were not very friendly. Anyway, after 13 years, and he had left with 100 men, he returned to Xi'an to Emperor Wudi. I can just picture him. He was carrying this six-foot or um, six-foot staff with a yak's tail on the back, uh, carrying the yak's tail. Now the yak's tail was a symbol of power, and so no matter what happened, he lost a hundred, uh, 99 men, but he carried the yak's tail. I just love that picture of him coming into Xi'an that way. So anyway, after a few years, about seven years. They did get some horses from the Yitzi people. Actually, they got 2,000 horses. But 2,000 horses really isn't a lot. You've got to have the breeding, and you have to have the food that will feed these horses, which happens to be alfalfa. And Chinese did not know how to grow alfalfa. So General Zhang was sent on another mission, this time, the mission was to the Farragon Valley, which was 2,500 miles away, through the Pamir Mountains and through the Gobi Desert and the Taklamakan Desert. They were very well prepared, though. First of all, Woody had sent a, uh, an emissary to this uh, king in the Farragon Valley to ask if he could have an alliance with the king, and also if he could buy the horses. The king was very independent, 2,500 miles away. Are you kidding? I don't need to worry about you. So he killed the emissary. Not a good thing. Because in China, saving face is very important. So, um, General, um, uh, General uh, Zhang was sent, I always forget these numbers, I've got them and they're very impressive. I, I just want to tell you the numbers of uh, uh, soldiers and oxen, 100,000 oxen, I remember that. He so sent out 70,000 horses, oh here we are, 60,000 soldiers, 100,000 oxen, 30,000 horses, 10,000 donkeys, mules, and camels, plus enough food, rice, dried rice, for the soldiers. And they marched all this way, 2,500 miles from Xi'an over here, all the way over 
to right about here, the Farragon Valley. And yes. Farragon Valley is Uzbekistan. Okay, yes, thank you. Um, and he, um, they, they had a 40-day siege. And finally, the people of the Farragon Valley told the king, hey, let's, let's sell them some horses. And the king still refused. So they killed the king, and they made a deal with the Chinese. They said, look, don't come into the city, but we'll sell you horses. So they gave them 10,000 horses and alfalfa. And uh, of course, there was stallions and mares in this group. Now, I wanted to tell you a little bit about these horses. They were very special because they were bred with dragons. Yes, the story is that they the dragons came out of this lake and bred with the mares of these horses. So these horses, when they, <clears throat> they would sweat, let me say, they would sweat blood. And they had a double spinal column so that there were muscles on either side of their spinal columns. They were fantastic horses. They could carry a man in full armor, a hundred li. Now, I don't know how far 100 Lee is. I looked it up on the internet, but it's lots of different things, and nobody really knows how far 100 Lee is. But it was a long way, trust me. So anyway, these horses made a difference, and also the trip out to um, the Farragon Valley made the Chinese the, pretty much the rulers of the Silk Road, at least this path that went um, a little bit north and up here, this path here. This would give them, the Chinese, um, a, a lot of clout because what they also did was the Chinese brought settlers out on this area and built fortresses to protect the Silk Road or uh, what we call the Silk Road, but these uh, paths, these trading paths. Um, up until that time, there was really no rule or law. It was whoever was the strongest would control a certain part of the land. So, um, you know, it was really, um, you never knew who was going to be in charge. So the only way traders could find out which road should I take would be to stop at these various uh, um, uh, Sarai, uh, I'm sorry, I can't think, um, yeah, caravan Sarai, and stop there and would stay a week, a night. These, I like to compare the caravan Sarai to um, Motel 6 <laughs> because. You know, you could make a reservation in advance, and many of these um, caravanserai were owned by merchant groups, so they knew that they would have a chance, a place to stay. Uh, they would supply um, some kind of a bed, uh, probably with a bunch of other merchants who hadn't had a bath in six weeks, but, uh, and they gave your animals a feed. In many of the places, animals were not allowed into the cities because they would cause disease or dirt. And so the, um, they were um, definitely kept out of the city and in the caravan Sarai. So <clears throat> you will, um, I'm going to tell you, in my book, there are three stories, three journeys. Of course, there were many, hundreds of journeys and many stories along the Silk Road. But the first one is about the merchant who goes from Samarkand because he lives in Uzbekistan, or he's a Sagdiana, I'm sorry, Samarkand over here, and here's Sagnia. It was a big area. Many times there were really no boundaries. The boundary was where the strong person wanted to put it. I mean, that's just the way it was. So the merchant travels east, and he travels um, through the Turgat Pass, across the Pyramir Mountain, Pyramir Mountains, and into Kashgar. 
In Kashgar, our merchant meets a monk. The monk is traveling from Saranath in India up through Gujarat and the salt flats and over to um, Kashgar. So the two of them meet, but in the um, book, of course, the monk doesn't stay at Caravanserai. He stays at the various monasteries along the way because of Buddhism was born in India, and it traveled from India via the Silk Road to China. So our monk is very anxious to take uh, the uh, Sanskrit uh, books from India so that they can be translated into Chinese. And many of those that was done, thousands of books were translated at the Big Goose Pagoda in Xi'an. So those are the two separate journeys that these people are taking. The third journey is the journey uh, on the uh, Maritime Silk Road. Now, there were so many dangers when you were traveling on land. And the biggest danger, of course, was bandits. So most of the people traveled in large caravans, maybe 1,000 to 2,000 camels. And the camels carried about 360 pounds, more or less. They traveled at a speed of 2.5 miles an hour. Not very fast. And every night, they had to be unloaded. And every morning, reloaded. So you can have a feeling of this trade route. Well, many of the traders did not go all the way. You know, they maybe would go three or four stages, which maybe, uh, you know, uh, 70, 90 miles. They would go, uh, and then they would trade with the local or with other traders, and then they would go back home and take other goods with them. So it w not necessarily did they travel the whole period uh, from, uh, uh, from um, well, I could say even from Rome. Now, somebody asked me, did the Romans have silk? What's very interesting is how the Romans found silk. Because the Roman Empire was spreading out. It was a very, they were trying to capture some of this land uh, east of the Mediterranean, and they were being met by a Persian army. And with the sun shining on the, on the golden uh, armor of the Persians, all of a sudden, these flags came out. They were silk flags. The Romans had never seen silk. And they thought it was some kind of a spirit that was flying in the air. And they took off. They, they, they were absolutely scared to death of these flying, these flags that were flying. Within 50 years, Rome, the, the Senate in Rome, was legislating about silk. Silk was hurting their balance of trade. They were importing more silk and costing more than they could export to China. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> well, anyway, that's what happened. And in fact, the silk was so glorious and so fine that they were legislating against wearing it. Men were not allowed to wear silk because it was transparent. It was okay for women to wear it, but the men were not wearing it. And there is a lot written about how women were spoiling the economy because they had to have this silk. So this is just an interesting note because silk was such an important part. Well, before I take you on a voyage um, on the Maritime Silk Road, I just want to give you a little information about my dress. This is from Uzbekistan. My hat is very typical Uzbekistan with the fur. And uh, because I lived during the time of the Silk Road, I have a camel bone necklace from Petra, 
from Jordan. My slippers are from Egypt. My ring is from India. And my uh, amber earrings are from my home in Uzbekistan. So um, we could have all kinds of fashion and wonderful things because of the Silk Road. Now, as I was saying, about uh, 600 or 700, um, the, um, the Persians were really taking advantage of their situation right here because the Chinese and other uh, traders were coming here, and of course, there was a lot of taxes collected everywhere. On every border, there were taxes. Now, where the Chinese ruled, it was much more stable up here because they had their guard houses. They kept order, and it was much easier for the traders. But down here, when they came through here to go uh, either um, by, by, land, by sea, uh, to Rome through um, the Mediterranean and the um, Red Sea, they would be caught by all of these taxes. So there was not, uh, by, by going on the Maritime Silk Road, there were not so many stops and so much taxes. So they were a little bit more in control of their goods. When traders came to India, they had a different situation. And of course, our monk has a different situation. Because in India, there were hundreds of small princely states, which they didn't call princely states, but they were all little tiny states, maybe only 10 miles long. But each one had a border, and, where, and you had to pay a tax. So. It wasn't as easy, and this is one reason why the, this part of the Silk Road became much uh, busier than other ones. Now, I've got to take you to this. I've got to show the movie because I've only got a few minutes and I don't want to uh, not let you see this. See here. Sea trade between the western coast of India and the states bordering the Excuse Persian me. Gulf had existed for centuries. We turn off some lights. Uh. In the 6th century, when Persia interfered with the overland routes between China and the Roman Empire, the maritime routes through the Mediterranean, the Red Sea, and the Persian Gulf were vital to the flow of staples as well as luxury goods. <clears throat> Leaving Alexandria, one traveled up the Nile for 12 days, a distance of about 284 miles. The next part was to travel overland by caravan to a port on the Red Sea, another 12 days. these places were covered with sand uh, by one, the year 1000. In the open sea, the monsoon winds take the ship to India from the Red Sea 
through the Persian Gulf and to a port on the west coast. It is a 30-day sea voyage. The Indian Gate and the Taj Hotel bring this ancient past into the future. Yet the boats and fish market have not changed much. The journey from Alexandria to India's first port would last 94 days without counting stopovers, bad weather, or waiting periods at each change of transport. The great stone temple in the harbor is a strange sight to these non-Indian travelers. What do they think of this tri-headed god carving? Can you hear can you hear this? for the seafarers fresh clams. Some of the travelers will leave the ship to do business in India and then return to Alexandria, Constantinople, or Petra. Others will continue on to China around the southern tip of India. Sailing south along the West Indian coast, the next port is Kochi. Today, tourists flock to see the 14th century Chinese nets. They are shore-operated lift nets. The nets are lowered into the water when the tide is just right. So you don't need a boat to fish. <laughs> While the ship was being loaded with frankincense, cinnamon, theriac, silk, and other exotic products for delivery in Ceylon, or China, the weary traveler could enjoy the backwaters of Kerala before heading to Ceylon. Ceylon is uh, Sri Lanka. Houseboats and temples made of woven grass were unknown to many travelers. by St. Thomas the Apostle in the first century AD, the importance of Ceylon on the Silk Road cannot be exaggerated. From the fourth century on through the seventh century, this Buddhist stronghold became the largest maritime trade center of the Indian Ocean. Coins from Rome, Alexandria, Carthage, Antioch, Constantinople, and other Mediterranean cities have been unearthed here. Besides the trade in pearls and ivory, the relic of Buddha's tooth brings many pilgrims to this island.
century, tourists climbed the steps to see the maidens painted on the walls of the Fort Palace atop the Lion's Gate. These portraits from the 6th century are the only remaining secular art of Sri Lanka. The steps are deceiving in the beginning, and then you start really climbing. <laughs> of the lion's gate at the top of the stone outcropping, but the view is similar to that of the 6th century. In the countryside, silk is hung out to dry after being dyed. The skeins are packed to ship perhaps back to the Mediterranean market, or perhaps to Byzantium, or Summercon. Sri Lankan elephants are treasured for their ivory, but they are notorious for their gossip. <laughs> She said, <laughs> as in many other areas, rice planting and cultivating is part of everyday life.
they married. And they celebrated. Besides being carvers, these people were fishermen. They often lived on the beach. Their job was to supply ships with food for the next stage of the journey. The stonecutter's legacy is alive. It is reflected in the statues shipped around the world, or perhaps the marble quarry here may be your kitchen's countertop.
orangutans are wild and not friendly. They are very dangerous. into the 20th century, these people were headhunters. see the eyes on the boat so they find the fish? <laughs> this one didn't have any eyes. <laughs> Dry on racks in the open air. 
I did not put that pig in the picture. It was there. Approaching Hanoi, the maritime Silk Road passes Halong Bay on the way to Guangzhou, its final destination. Hopefully, the plans made at the time of sailing in Alexandria are still viable. Many brides arrive in China only to find their future husbands are dead and they are now widows. <laughs> Politics change. One day you can be a hero, the next day abandoned. Well, that's the end of that um, particular show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, if you have any questions, I would be happy to answer them. I did want to say that all of these pictures and every picture in the book, I have taken and been there. And uh, so um, I looked for a book like this uh, because I did not want an academic book. I just wanted a book that showed pictures and told you about the people and the life on the Silk Road with pictures, and I couldn't find one. So I'm going to Iran, and I have been uh, recently to um, Ethiopia, which is also part of the Silk Road, and I'm hoping to sort of add that to the story. Okay, any questions? Yes. Oh. Can you just remind us um, why, uh, what made Marco Polo so famous and so much associated with the Silk Road? Well, Marco Polo actually came in the 12th, uh, 1200. So he was, uh, the Silk Road had been in existence for way over six or 700 years before Marco Polo even uh, came. So um, he's famous because he's Marco Polo. And recently they just discovered some maps that they think are um, from Marco Polo. There's a new book out about the maps uh, that were just discovered uh, maybe 50 years ago uh, that were copies of places that he went that he never mentioned before in his writing. So um, he really didn't go all over the Silk Road. He just went to a few places. One of the places he went to, and one that I have been to, is where he said the king was so friendly, and all the people were so friendly. The husbands left, and left Marco and, I mean, and, all the, and his men with their wives. That was part of the hospitality. <laughs> he loved that place. So another question? Um, What brought the trade to an end? Well, um, actually, you know, it still hasn't ended. Um, in fact, um, about uh, a year and a half ago, there was a high-speed train that went from Germany all the way to uh, China delivering uh, HP computers in, uh, in airtight computers. Uh, uh, wrappings that were never opened for customs or anything. So the Silk Road is just morphing. Uh, they have built 
um, a road through the Taklamakan Desert, which is incredible. They uh, use plants along the road to keep the sand off the road, and they have pumping stations every so often with people living there to make sure the pumping stations are working so that people the they can get the oil from the desert before they had with no uh road they had to uh, go in with helicopters and pull the the oil out it was just too expensive so they built this uh, road there's also a pipeline from kyrgyzstan into uh is it um it's into in xinjiang into uh, china so um it's just changing it's morphing but just like we are morphing so, um, yes? Uh, two questions I want to ask. Um, is this the richest part of the world with the frankincense myrrh and the gold? And are you selling also the tapes, DVDs? Um, Actually, I have sold the tapes, but um, I didn't think there was much of a market because people want books rather than discs. They, but I do, I can, I can sell them. I'll sell them, uh, and I'll talk to you afterwards if you want them. I have many, though. I have them on The Monk. I have them on uh, uh, The Vanquished Ruler. I have m many because I teach a course at Renaissance that takes six weeks or seven weeks, so it, it's pretty full. Um, your first, your second, your, what was your first question? It was about, oh, the richest part of the world. It was a very rich part of the world then, and um, it was the source of so many raw materials. I mean, when they didn't have refrigeration, of course, all these spices from India were, they called pepper black gold. So it just depends. Things change. Maybe someday we won't need oil, and then the Arabs will be hungry. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> Yes. Thank you very much for your lecture. I have a question about travel arrangement. Did you face any difficulty for arranging visiting these places? Um, first of all, they're uh, going uh, from... Oh, yeah, I'll repeat the question. Did I experience any difficulties going uh, on these different trips? This was taken over a period of 10 years, I would say. And, um, well, you can't really go some places like... Um, Burma, you cannot go without a tour. You have to go in a group uh, because it's a police state. And uh, when I was in Egypt, we had an armed guard with us on the bus all the time. And when I wanted to go out for dinner by myself, I had two Egyptian soldiers coming with me. Um, also, um, in... Um, when you go from the border of uh, China into Kyrgyzstan... Let me tell you, you can't bring a car. You have to be sure your car is from Kyrgyzstan that meets you there. So it's very difficult to um, make sure that you have these arrangements and you could get stuck on the border for a long time. It's not great. Um, I will say I am going to Iran in September and uh, we can only go to Iran with a group visa and that means you have to stay with the group and you have to have your head covered at all times when you're out in public. Women only or men? Women. I, I don't think men have to get their heads covered. I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I didn't. <laughs> well, it was a while ago. Um, okay, uh, Judy, what do you think? Any other questions? I have two questions. One, how often might a trader travel the Silk Road, and would they always take the same route, or would they go to different places to trade with different groups of people? Uh, first of all, they would not take the same route. It w they would have to wait and see who was controlling that route. So if they were Chinese, and they would not want to go on the route that was controlled by the Tibetans. And that changed all the time, you know, or uh, uh, some other group that you weren't familiar with. For example, if your mother was Indian and your father was Tibetan, you'd have to be very careful uh, on how these things worked. Also... Um, did they, um, traders were adventurers. Um, they probably never took the same route, close to it. But you know, when you're traveling with a thousand camels and several thousand people, it really doesn't make it that much difference. The scenery never changes unless you're the lead dog. You know that. 
Well, I'd like to thank all of you for coming. And uh, if you'd like to take a look at the book, there's a lot more in the book than I could show you today. But um, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Judy.